Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian and with Mike, and Mike and I are rereading the Patrick O'Brien novels. And if you haven't figured that out by now, where have you been? <laughs> Anyhow, Mike, here we are, part way through Blue at the Mizzen. Catch us up, would you please? Where were we last time? Where are we headed to this week? Oh, thanks, Ian. Would love to. Well, last time in chapter four. Stephen dealt with a ship full of dysentery. Jack mentored young Horatio Hansen. Stephen found Dr. Jacob in Funchal and learned that Captain Sir David Lindsay, hired by a group of Southern Chilean independence-minded people, sails on the 27th and will pick up a second ship in Rio. Uh, they decide Jacob is going to hike across the Andes to gather more intelligence before... The surprise arrives in Chile, and Stephen told Jack his plan to ask Christine Wood to marry him. Now, this time, in Chapter 5, the surprise arrives in Sierra Leone. In the midst of amazing wildlife, Stephen takes his chance with Christine. Jacob and Stephen worry about Jack, and young Hansen enters the boxing ring, fighting for the honor of the surprise. Wow. At long last, we're starting to get into a pattern here, Mike which is that finally, finally, the surprise gets to make her voyages and complete an entire leg of the voyage without any kind of disaster. Because without further ado, we are here anchored off of Freetown in Sierra Leone. Um, the governor signals an invitation for the officers and midshipmen of the surprise to come to dinner at half past four. And there they all are. They're dressed in their finest uniforms. Jack is seated at this dinner next to Lady Morris, the wife of the current governor. And Stephen, despite his humble rank in the service, is seated next to Christine Wood. Not, as you would have thought, First Lieutenant, Lieutenant Harding. Lady Morris has a, an explanation, a rationalisation for this unconventional seating arrangement, saying that the two, she means Stephen and Christine, the two share a previous acquaintance and a common interest in birds and it's a very charitable and insightful, friendly thing to do, but it doesn't seem to bring them much comfort. Stephen and Christine sit there painfully embarrassed, it says, tongue-tied and awkward, until a plantain eater uttered its horrible screech. And Stephen cries, it's way too far north for that creature to be here. And Christine goes right back at him, almost sharply says, despite what several naturalists say, this is not the northern limit of plantain eaters. Two pears had bred in her garden this year, and there were reports of others. And this little exchange breaks the ice between them, puts them back on the basis of what the text calls their former scientific candor. And Stephen goes on to tell Christine quite freely about his anomalous nuthatch. We've heard about that one too. And about the lions and flamingos that he'd encountered in the Atlas Mountains in the previous book. And it seems, Mike, that their affections are flowing once again, and their neighbours start to notice that there's something going on between these two. So before we get into the potentially blossoming connection here between Stephen and Christine, remind us, what's a plantain eater? Is that a, is that a member of the governor's household? <laughs> or, 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 a, or a monkey or a bird? 
Right, right, right. Yeah, you would think, you know, any of the above, but it's actually a bird, right? A bird, what Wikipedia calls a common, noisy, and conspicuous bird in tropical West Africa. So, you know, absolutely par for the course here. A fruit eater primarily of figs with a loud cow, cow, cow call. Sadly, I, I didn't turn up a great tape of, uh, of, of the plantain eater's horrible screech. Mm. Uh, or actually, to be honest, what I heard didn't sound like a horrible screech, but it certainly fits the narrative well. <laughs> Stephen tells Christine that he's really glad to see her, and he apologizes for what he calls his indifferent writing, the writing of his letters. And he asks if he can call upon her tomorrow, saying that he longs to see her work on Addison and explore the northern shore of the marsh that they didn't get to explore last time. And then Stephen says, wait, I wanted to ask you if you ever determined if your porphyria was a breeding species. And Ian, I, I had to scratch my head here. Addison, we've heard about before. Porphyria, we've heard about before, but not as a breeding species. No, that's right. It's, it's an odd one here. Porphyria, as they've spelt it here, is... Uh, a disease. It's a genetic error in the metabolism of hemoglobin. It's quite a serious genetic condition, believed to have been possibly the malady behind the madness of King George III. But talking about it as a breeding species, Dean King, bless him, suggests that O'Brien was referring here to a species called Porphyrio, Porphyrio, which is the Latin name of the purple gallinule or the western swamp hen, which is a large bird like a rail. It's a kind of rail. It has blue plumage and a red bill and red legs. And Mike, uh, I don't know if we're meant to spot any sort of ironic connection or imagery between Porphyria and Porphyrio. Perhaps more likely in this case, this is just an editing flub and we've got an A when we should really have an O. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Yeah, because I think O'Brien in this chapter is just spot on on his bird references and nature and, and even Addison, who just got brought up here. We revisited Addison or we visited Addison earlier, reverse of the medal, Commodore Yellow Admiral, this 18th century Scottish naturalist yeah. who wrote this fabulous taxonomy that got completely superseded by Linnaeus. But here we have and something of great interest to Stephen, Christine saying, you know, I'm kind of testing this taxonomy against all these birds around here. And Stephen's fascinated by that, of course, as he would be. Yeah, of course. And if you're Team Stephen, then you're excited that maybe this story of this wooing of Christine Woods is about to, to take its next step. As the dinner winds up, she invites him to drop by the following morning at 10 a.m. She's moved into a new house that's almost at the edge of the water. She bought this place for herself as a holiday place, and it's now her permanent residence. She tells Stephen where this place is and says that she'll send her maid, Jenny, to guide him in. And well before 10 the next morning, Jenny the maid comes alongside the surprise in a skiff rowed by our old friend John Square, his guide, from the last visit to Freetown, back in, what, the Commodore, I think? He's really delighted to see Square. He's probably glad that Square caught him as he'd almost fallen into the skiff, which is another nice little signifier of Stephen Matron being all, all right in the world. And once Stephen is safely on shore, he wanders aloud to Harding, why, why didn't I send Stephen ashore in the barge? Because he's looking again at Stephen's lubberly conduct around boats and wondering why he didn't help him out. So, Mike, we, we get this really delightful scene of this cosmopolitan town ashore. 
Stephen and Jenny in Square are walking through the marketplace. There's all kinds of fruit and fish. Stephen buys them all some sugar cane. And I'm reminded a little bit of the Commodore and a little bit of HMS Surprise when we were in uh, in Bombay and Calcutta as well, of Ryan's writing in his very colourful way about the diversity of the people, people from Africa, from Europe, from Middle Eastern countries. They pass by a stream and John Square points out to Stephen the footprint of a leopard. Jenny the maid says that the leopard comes for dogs and Stephen enjoys all birds as they're walking along. Um, we're going to come back to leopards a little bit later on. So there's perhaps a little bit of a, a, a planting there of the leopard species for us to come back to later. Yeah, so they come up to this massive gate into a stable yard filled, it says, with bristling, suspicious dogs. And Christine's there with the dogs, greets them, apologizes for not having come herself, and said she really had to settle the dogs after the leopard's visit the night before. So you're right, Ian, we're right back with this. Yeah. She brings right. Stephen some canvas top boots and promises him a tolerable bird if they leave immediately and if they're able to make it past the mangroves and all the leeches. Stephen replies and, and calls her Miss Christine. So Stephen apologizes for calling her Miss Christine, saying that's what her brother Edward always called her when they were talking together. And she says that her brother always called him Stephen when they talked together. So they mutually agree that those names are the most natural for them. So looks like you say, you know, things are going on the right direction here. Yeah, absolutely. As they walk along, Stephen's asking Christine about the local birds. And she explains that because of this mixture of fresh and salt water in the habitat, because of the liquid mud of the mangroves, they have this very particular local bird population. And then the conversation turns to other species. She gets to thanking him for the hermaphrodite crab that he had sent. And my, <laughs> I'm reading this on Team Stephen, thinking, come on, come on, never mind with the hermaphrodite crabs. We've, we've, got, we've got stuff we need to talk about here. But... It's being, it's being drawn out for us. We're being teased a little bit. They sit together to look at all this splendid wealth of birds. They take notes. They make out different birds between them. And Christine's trying to uh, explain the best way to try and get past the mangroves that are ahead of them as they leave. She says she should grab the aerial roots. And I'm kind of waving my hands here. You know, mangrove trees have these kind of buttress roots that are in the air above the surface of the water. She says, grab those. It's undignified, but she says it's better than slipping into the vile, stinking black mud. She also says that they need to hurry. She's got an eye on the movement of the sun. He, meaning a particular creature, he begins to move when the sun is at this height. Stephen understood that this might be a bird, a reptile, possibly a mammal of a rarity that would delight him. He asked no questions. And soon he had no time to ask any that might arise as he concentrated on following her practiced steps through this slimy shade. And my, I've still got my head in my hands here going, never mind all the questions about mud and mangroves and sun. We've got a big question to ask here. Whenever are we going to get to answering it? Are we going to get any relief in the next paragraph here? Well, it, it's interesting. I, I, I was wondering the same thing, Ian, and then this story kind of went in a whole different direction for me. Right. I mean, great, great in a way if you're on Teen Stephen and, and maybe even jumps right past the question. So as the sun and the tide get higher, Christine moves even faster and then, whoops, too fast for her mud-clogged boots. 
she falls into you know what O'Brien has called this vile, stinking black mud. Stephen tries to move very quickly to pull her out, but that causes him to fall in himself. And the two of them have to wallow on all fours to the edge of the mangrove trees, <laughs> past this liquid mud into the fresh water and a cleaner bottom so that they can crawl ashore. And Christine says, O'Brien writes, how I hope we did not disturb him. Oh, probably not. There's 200 yards yet to go. Does nakedness worry you? Not in the least. After all, we are both anatomists. Very well, she said. There's nothing for it. We must both strip and rid our clothes of mud, our bodies of leeches. We have clean water here, thanks, B. And in my pocket, there is salt for the leeches in a corked bottle. May I give you a hand with your boots? O'Brien tells us they strip with no ceremony, float the mud off their clothes, and attend to the numerous leeches on each other in, the text says, a wholly impersonal manner. Mm. I did not see that coming. No. I mean, we're inching a little bit closer to the core matter at hand here, but no. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to think back through my most unusual first dates, and I never remember one quite like this. <laughs> yeah, not often involving leeches, I've got to say. That was a rarity for first dates. Right, right. So it's interesting. We still got to guess, I think, and I think O'Brien's enjoying teasing us about what's really going on here. What does is, what is Christine really think about Stephen? No, I think you're. I think you're right. Ian. We we still are guessing, and we know. I think what Stephen thinks of Christine. Although I've got to admit that this whole picking all these leeches off in a wholly impersonal manner, perhaps a little different than the way we remember O'Brien telling us about how Stephen was thinking about seeing her naked from his last trip. So I don't know. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Well. If Stephen's gaze is kind of the same as O'Brien's gaze, we, we know that he's very struck by the sight of her unclothed because he goes on this kind of reflection about how, apart from artists' models and people in countries where no clothes at all are worn, he had never seen somebody as unconcerned with nudity as Christine is. And uh, Stephen remembers her brother, that's Stephen's intimate friend, telling him, that the two of them, Edward and Christine, had bathed, naturalised and fished, wearing nothing at all on an isolated lake on their property from childhood right through to maturity. And Stephen remembers from an earlier time admiring Christine and her black companion when they'd swum naked into his line of vision as he was birdwatching nearby on his last visit to Freetown in the, the book to the Commodore. And now he's taken by the way the blood from the leech bites turns vermilion and flows down, outlining the curve of her long, long legs with an extraordinarily pleasing effect. And now something of the scientist, something of the pure anatomist, began to leave him. Yes, we're getting a little bit Mills and Boone here, Mike. (laughs) There you go. Exactly right. Well, they're picked all the leeches off. They're getting ready to start walking again. And she says, you know what? As we get a little further down here, the flies are going to be intolerable. So it's probably better that we put our clothes back on. And I don't know if I were Stephen, I'd probably be thinking, yeah, you're absolutely right. (laughs) But further on, though, O'Brien writes, she reached a last screen of rushes before a small secluded inlet. And as she did so, there leapt into the air a perfectly enormous bird of the heron kind, 
bluish on top, chestnut below, with immense green legs and a deep, furious, baying cry. He filled the narrow space of sky before vanishing seawards, leaving Stephen perfectly amazed. He kissed Christine quite ardently, thanking her with the most profound gratitude. She blushed and said, Oh, how glad I am we had not flushed him. He is as touchy as a Roman emperor. Oh, still, still no nearer. <laughs> still no nearer. Anyway, so we, we get to turn from uh, leeches and nakedness and mud and mangroves and black swamps to these heron-type birds. Stephen reflects that this enormous bird is so big, he's surprised it can fly. And his amazement continues for some time. And coming out of it, he notices that even though he and Christine have been naked for a while now, she has a certain coquetry, a certain flirtatiousness in arranging the fall of her principal garment. Mm. So the, the gaze is still there. Christine suggests that they go back for some tea and that they should then come out later to visit a reed shelter, a hunting hide just offshore, to see a prodigious wander after the sun goes down. She says they'll have to carry a gun since the leopard that we saw the footprint of a few paragraphs ago is growing desperate with so many insatiable cubs. They chat a bit about the, the leopards and the cubs and the family here. Stephen asks if she's ever seen them. She has, she says, just after dawn when they poke their heads out, waiting for their mother. She likes to observe them from the top of an oil palm tree. She had driven 10 penny nails, which, Mike, you and I Googled this. This just means nails that are about three inches long. She drove 10 penny nails into the tree to climb it, but she says the nails have cost her many a good skirt. And I, I'm liking this reflection on her clothing here. We, we're getting simultaneously Christine characterized as an independent, self-sufficient woman and focusing on her garments, clothing her lower half, a little bit of the erotic fascination of Stephen Maturin as well. Right. Well, they, they get back home and uh, Christine goes off to change and Stephen is looking at her collection of bird skins for her work on Addinson, this naturalist we talked about earlier. And while he's doing so, O'Brien writes, Stephen is revolving one of those curious problems of limit. He's revolving this in his mind. You may kill a leopard if she assumes a threatening attitude, thus condemning her beautiful cubs to a hideous and lingering death. You may shoot and skin a number of slightly differing green pigeons and wood doves with no more of a tremor than Sir Joseph Blaine impaling a butterfly. Yet to the question you would not destroy the whole litter and be shot of them? You would reply, if you had seen a little leopard, I do not think you would ask. Mm. And, you know, I I just, I, I thought this was such a fabulous glimpse into Stephen's mind. This man who's forever rescuing or trying to rescue children. This man who deals with these issues of, I love life. I don't want to take life. I yeah. love nature. And I do want to study it too. And another wonderful glimpse into O'Brien's magnificent writing, the way these things just arise in day-to-day -day life. And he captures these observations. Just love it. It is great, isn't it? it it's still not buttering any parsnips for those of us who want to get to right. Stephen popping the question to Christine. Anyway, they're, they're having tea. I mean, here we go. O'Brien giving his characters food, maybe signify something's going to happen here. They have his tea, they have sandwiches, delight, other delights, they have dessert. They're talking about bird skins that she's collated. And then Stephen notices her looking out of the window with this anxious look. She's not wanting to miss the evening rise. 
He turns away the next cup of tea and suggests they collect lanterns and go down to the hides. And off they go, Christine giving the gun to Stephen that she had said earlier that they would need. They both see a three-quarter moon rising above them. And Stephen says, in this sort of off-handed way, that he himself is often shockingly careless of the common decencies of life. What, you mean taking all our clothes off in that abandoned way? Do you mean, no, our forebears did that long before us, long before they had any notion of that apron of fig leaves? And Stephen goes on to say that he means not asking Christine about how her chanting goshawks are doing. Unfortunately, we learn the mother of the goshawks had been killed by an eagle. Christine had not succeeded in bringing up the babies. She had, however, captured the eagle and worked with him until they were on reasonably good terms and turned him, the eagle, loose. This eagle still has the habit of coming down to sit on her shoulder and, and, and greet her. There's a hope there that Stephen might see this eagle too. So, Mike, we've got another turn into the, the world of birds and, and a, another paragraph or two of really evocative writing from O'Brien here. Yeah, and, and another fascinating peek into this woman, Christine. I want to watch over these baby birds and then, ah, oh, their mother's killed and I'm going to nurture them. And, you know, I'm very sad to have lost them. And there's this pretty vicious young eagle who she captures, tames, and sets back free into nature again. So it's like it's both a loving mother and a pretty fierce woman who says, all right, Eagle, you can still have your territory here, but we're going to have to come to some reasonable agreement. I, I, I thought that was great. Yeah. Well, they're headed out to the hides and they've got this rope causeway. So I guess it shows them where to walk along the rocks through the water here to get to these hides here. And she explains to Stephen that her husband and his guests used to use these hides to shoot ducks and geese. You know, you can stand in them, you can see, but you cannot be seen. And she likes to use it to observe birds. And in the hide, they both are pointing out the calls of different birds and trying to distinguish between them until they hear a very different sound. And she tells Stephen not to move. O'Brien writes, they stood taut, their senses at the stretch, the utmost stretch, and clear against the pale sky, not 20 yards before them, flew a bird with a night jar's action but extraordinarily modified by two immensely elongated flight feathers on either side, trailing far behind more than doubling its length. With an instant change of direction, it swooped on a pale moth, captured it, and flew off, lost against the darkness of the trees. Mm. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you know, we've read all these different historical native fiction series. This is a pretty typical sentence for one of those, right? <laughs> right. Oh, with the the birds and the nature and the light and the color and the 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 death and predation as well happening in the same sentence, it's it's really really great stuff. Christine has been gripping Stephen's arm while they've been waiting, and he's so relieved that he's come here. Stephen is amazed again at this bird that he's just seen, at the wealth of birds around them, and he asks her for a little bit more information about this bird. And Mike, what comes up next might count as a bit of Patrick O'Brien. Highfalutin double entendre. Stephen begins by saying that he, he knows very little. He is Shaw's Caprimulgus longipennis. I'll say that again. He is Shaw's Caprimulgus longipennis. Okay. And he is uncommon in these parts, above all in his full mating plumage. I have seen only two all the time I have been here. 
that perfectly astonishing train, by the way, is just the ninth primary on either side. And how the poor bird manages to get into the air, I cannot imagine, especially if he happens to be on the ground. And besides the chuckle value of Longipennis as a, as a species name, this Mike is, is a real bird, right? Well, it, it is a real bird. So to, to O'Brien's credit, this standard winged nightjar does have this unusual you know, mating season plumage. So it's another one of these males with this incredible plumage during the mating season to attract women. Uh, and it is found exactly in this part of Africa and is an avid moth eater. Yeah. Now, what's a little off perhaps here is that it was named by George Shaw, an English physician and naturalist, member of the Royal Society, who, by the way, is credited with you know 367 avian names and all, as well as numerous species of reptiles and amphibians. And in a throwback to earlier books in the canon, was one of the first scientists to examine and publish a scientific description of the platypus. Mm. So there's a piece of me going, hmm, wonder, wonder if O'Brien was reading a lot about George Shaw and, and inserting these things throughout the canon here. But I, I couldn't help wondering to myself, wait a minute, if Shaw described this bird to the Royal Society in 1796, mm. I'm finding it a little bit hard that 40 years plus later, Stephen, who's already been earlier in the scene distinguishing between the calls of this you know, astounding number of night jars as they wait in the hide, has never heard of this bird, especially when it's as rare as something like a standard winged night jar. But if Stephen had heard of it, that wouldn't have allowed Christine to go ahead and explain the Latin name and talk about the only two longa penises that she's seen since she's been in Freetown. So in terms of the story, I'm thinking to myself, shall we assume that's her husband and Stephen? You know, but oh. I remind myself, as Sigmund Freud would have said, had he been an Aubrey Matron fan, sometimes a standard wing night jar is just a standard wing night jar. Oh. Very good. <laughs> well, we've got some great imagery of the mating plumage of the standard wing night jar, and we'll try to get that out on our socials so you can all take a look as you're listening along here. Now, we're edging towards the moment that we've all been waiting for here. Stephen says, I should not have missed that for anything. On the face of it, those primaries destroy the bird's efficiency, just as the peacock's ludicrous train or the lavish display of the birds of paradise may be presumed to cost them a very great deal. Yet they live and even thrive. Could it be that our notions, or at least my notions, are fundamentally mistaken? <laughs> Mike, that's a great question. Could it be that our notions are fundamentally mistaken? That's... The question that the skeptical O'Brien is putting in front of lots of his characters and probably in front of us as readers all the way through the canon. Our notions may be mistaken. And, and it seems a particularly interesting set of notions to be questioning right now. These are all about male displays in mating rituals. And right. we're waiting for Stephen <laughs> to pop the question. And, and it gets back to this whole thing that O'Brien's talked about throughout the canon about the position of women, the position of men, how yeah. we treat, you know, all of that stuff here. But I digress. Let's get <laughs> back to Christine and Stephen here as they're standing there. Well, they stand in silence. And then Christine tells Stephen about other birds outside until she notices that Stephen looks uneasy. Now, 
Thinking he has to attend to a physical need, she asks if she should go away for a few moments and just have him whistle when it's okay to return. And Stephen says, no, no, it's, it's not the usual physical matter. <laughs> Stephen says it's, it's him just trying to throw his petition into a reasonably acceptable form. And then he just jumps to it. And the text says, in short, it would give me infinite joy if you would marry me. Yet before you instantly put me to silence, let me at least say what I can in my own favor. Yeah. So this is, this is Stephen bringing out his mating plumage here. <laughs> and, and he says that, you know, even though he's far from being tolerably good looking, he's pretty sound and has no grossly evident vices. And, yeah. and I would have to pause and say, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, this has never been an area where Stephen is really good in his self, uh, you know, insight and self-assessment. But he mm-hmm. goes on. Uh, he is rather well to do. He lists some of his properties, says he stands reasonably well in his profession. True. He does say he has to admit his birth was illegitimate and he's a Roman Catholic by faith. But he doesn't believe that, as the text says, to a person of her, of Christine's distinguished intelligence, these would be total bars to a union. Ah, nice. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick O'Brien. And he adds that he is a widower and has a daughter. Here we go. He's played his cards. He's done the usual very unassuming Stephen thing of just laying it out there for her at long last. And I love the fact that we have this little phrase here that says several night jars chur and an owl calls because it's the job of the birds in this chapter to hold us back from quickly resolving this tension here. So these night jars and these this owl all give their calls before Christine finally responds. Stephen, she says, you do me infinite honour and it grieves me more than I can say to desire you to dismiss the subject from your mind. I have been married, as of course you know, and very unhappily married. I too am pretty sound from the physician's point of view. I too am reasonably wealthy. But I am speaking, of course, to an honourable man my husband was incapable of the physical aspects of marriage and his vain attempts to overcome this defect gave me what I have believed to be an ineradicable disgust for everything to do with that aspect. The whole seemed to me a violent and, of course, inept desire for possession and physical dominance. And this impression was no doubt reinforced by my own fear and reluctance. Wow. Like this is, this is a blow to the heart for Stephen Maturin. And it, it's funny, we'll, we'll get into the rest of the conversation in a moment. I'm kind of struck here that she's sort of a mirror image of Clarissa Oakes in terms of her attitude to, to, to sex and relationships. Clarissa thought that the physical act meant nothing and was, a, was completely commonplace because of a traumatic experience in her past. And Christine says the act is alien and anathema to her again because of trauma in her past and i don't know i just find myself wondering if there's a connection here so she's laid out her side her response to stephen's question and uh we have to wonder what's going to happen next yeah and fascinatingly it's almost like after this very intimate revelation uh, as well as as you say gosh this big you know i'll answer you right away no <laughs> and here's why she, after some silence, asked Stephen, as a physician, 
if hers is a usual state of mind in a young married woman. So interestingly, she's saying, you know, this is the way I feel about this. Is this usual? I mean, is this typical? Text says he, Stephen, reflected and said, I have very rarely encountered a case in which the circumstances were so extreme as yours, but I do know how often the sorrow and woe that is in marriage arise from want of elementary physical understanding, to say nothing of ineptitude, selfishness, gross ignorance. And Stephen goes on, please wipe my foolish self-seeking words from your memory as far as ever you can. But do let us go on exchanging notes on Addison. There are lanterns coming down through the trees. So Stephen's completely <laughs> changing the subject, saying, can I take back my proposal, please? You know, let's just go back to where we were. And uh, by the way, it looks like somebody's coming to get us here. Oh, it's terrible. It's like, this takes me back to all of the abortive marriage proposals in you know, post-Captain and HMS Surprise. And, oh, feel terrible for Stephen. Christine feels a little terrible for him as well. Oh dear, she said, taking his hand, I'm afraid I have wounded you, a man I esteem more than any who have ever addressed me. Stephen, I am so sorry. Stephen listens out to the nightjar because once again, it's the birds that are punctuating this conversation. And he times the call of the nightjar with the pulse of his heart, which is a brilliantly poetical idea, even if it's not written as poetry. In the lights that are coming in from the edge of the woods, he can see that Christine has been weeping and she takes his arm and together they walk back to the house and sit down to dinner. Wow. Uh, Mike, this is, ah, this is a very sad interlude for Stephen. Uh, I, I'm sure that there's still going to be a reason to have hope, but it looks like he played his card and it didn't work out. Yeah. And it, I remember the, the, the text was saying that this idea about timing the call of the night jar with the pulse of his heart was his way of trying to kind of tamp down his sorrow, yeah. you know, to not show this emotion through. And then he sees that she is weeping outwardly too. So, you know, wow, I'm with you. Wow. Oh, well, I know they're about to sit down to, to dinner I'm I'm sure hoping that there are drinks served with dinner because I yeah. need one right about now. Perhaps all of us do. Why don't we come back right after this message? Let's do that. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back from the break. We hope that you're fortified with a little something to help you back from the, the very dark, the very kind of sad mood of the uh, that last little conversation between Stephen and Christine. Let's think of more optimistic things, Mike, because here we are halfway through Blue at the Mizzen. And if you count among the ones of our listeners who can count and count chapters, you know that we're getting close to the end of the amount of written practical brand material that we have to talk about. So you've probably got questions in mind about how do we handle the approaching end of the canon? Uh, and we've done some thinking and some consultation about this, and we have a plan. So our plan is 
that we're not going to be finished with Blue at the Mizzen. We're going to reread Post Captain and HMS Surprise at our slower one episode per chapter pace. And we know from all of our dialogue with you over the months and years that there are still things in Post Captain and HMS Surprise that we need to dig into that we missed the previous time. We have a plan as well to add a couple of episodes based on other works like the two earlier Patrick O'Brien naval books, Golden Ocean and the Unknown Shore. We have some ideas for big end of series interviews to help us reflect on the whole canon. And we're going to finish the whole Lover's Hole experience and cap all of our reading and all of our dialogue with you by finally, finally, finally reading 21, the final book in the Patrick O'Brien canon. So uh, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who've been part of this dialogue as we try and figure out what to do with the end of the canon. Thank you to them for their thoughts and ideas in helping us get this plan together. Thanks to all of you for keeping on listening to The Lover's Hole and giving us a real dilemma of how do we handle ourselves as we get to the end of the canon here. At this rate, we're going to have new episodes to share with you well into the middle of 2024. So that means the lover's hole is going nowhere in the short term. We hope that this is good news for you. And we hope that you're all going to enjoy completing the circumnavigation with us. And Mike, you and I are looking forward to keeping this dialogue going as well, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My particular friend wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> amen, amen. So back to the story. Are we going to go back to heartbreak? Or are we going to go back to double entendre, Mike? Yeah, we're we're going to go back to double entendre. So after dinner, Christine shows him the skin of this longipennis once more and tells him about the juju power of those two particular long feathers in local belief. And she says, the longer I live in Africa and the more I know about Africans, the nearer I come to a sort of diffused pantheism. I thought, Wow. Okay. Boy, boy, you know, we've we've had some references to Adam and Eve and Genesis and something. Oh, so all right, now we're at a diffused pantheism. And pantheism, you know, for some people, you know, I, I think mistaken definition. Pantheism's a doctrine that identifies God with the universe or regards the universe as a manifestation of God. Mm. Uh, a lot of times it's been referred to as, as sort of a worship that admits or tolerates all gods. Yeah. Um, that's really a belief that's more precisely termed omnism. Yeah. But this, this idea of pantheism, pan, all of everything, and theos, God and divine, all of everything is God and divine. So fascinating thought here on the lips of Christine. Well, later she says, kind of following on to this, that she realizes that her divinity, kind of her theological thinking, angers missionaries to quite a surprising degree. And and I'm sure she's absolutely right. If you, you kind of look back in history, you know, the Catholic church, for example, has, you know, considers, considers pantheism heresy and, and burned Giordano Bruno, an Italian friar at the stake in 1600 for his pantheism. And, and some scholars argue, you know, perhaps also, uh, or perhaps about his views on the afterlife. And he became a martyr to science. So, you know, yes, yes, some missionaries are quite angered. But Christine says that's okay, because on the whole, she doesn't care for many missionaries either. But she does say that some missionaries are also naturalists which leads her to bring out a green feather that she said, 
you know, a missionary, she believes it was an old Franciscan, but definitely a missionary, said came from the Congo peacock. Stephen says, well, you know, I've heard of the Congo peacock, but I've never known it described by a reliable witness. And that's exactly correct. In fact, the the Congo peacock, or as it became known, the Congo peafowl, you know, this peacock looking thing was not named until 1936. Christine says this missionary told her that he plucked it from the back of a recently dead peacock in the Congo. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, I can't decide whether this is genuine comfort to Stephen to be able to keep going with their ornithological anatomy conversations about birds or whether it's prolonging the agony. (laughs) But anyhow, Stephen very humbly and very sincerely thanks her for delighting him three times that day. First of all, with the heron, then with the improbable night jar, and then with this fable peacock, a peacock which he says, on whose existence I shall now pledge my soul. I am sorry that you do not choose to marry me, although I thoroughly understand your, what shall I say, disinclination. And O'Brien goes on to describe the, the surprising length of emotional time that had passed between them, standing in this hide, and this statement. She drinks more rum and asks Stephen that if she had said yes, how then would he have managed the purely material side of the union? And I think she means, where would you live? And she goes on to ask about Bridget, about his daughter. Stephen says he's the same to say he can't remember her age. (laughs) But he says she's quite young, nowhere near puberty. Yeah, okay, interesting. (laughs) His definition of the maturity of his daughter is linked to the emergence of her sexual characteristics. Yeah, okay. Is is that is that an, an innocence in, in the same way that Christine grew up innocent before being exposed to the sexuality of her impotent husband? Or what's going on there? That's very, very complex. Yeah, and, and as they're talking, Stephen recalls that Stephen is currently engaged with his friend on a distant and important voyage. And she's saying, what were you thinking would have happened if I'd said, yes, you know, tell me about your daughter. They have that now, but, but you're about to leave for a very long time. And, and Stephen's kind of like, oh yeah, yeah. Turning his head side to side. And he says, well, yeah, I I am, but, but, you know, I wasn't entirely thoughtless or selfish in proposing. Uh, Stephen says, and the text reads, I had a very pretty solution. My idea was that you should go to England, there to stay with Sophie Aubrey, a charming woman and a very old friend who has two girls and a son who looks after Bridget, my daughter, and who lives in a large house in Dorset with quantities of friends all around and a most respectable body of servants. And then it appears to what I can only diffidently call my mind, in other words, the embodiment of my wishes, I should return from the sea and that together we should plot the course of our days, England, Ireland, France, or Spain, any combination according to your choice. So interesting conversational turn here. Yeah, she's beginning to go, what if? I I don't know whether to start to set hope running again or not about this. Let's, Let's see where it goes next. Just as we've had Stephen's watch kind of chiming at emotionally important moments earlier in the story, we have it here again. Christine this time hears the uh, the chimes of Stephen's watch and she wonders, can it possibly be 12? He shows her the watch 
and has it repeat the chime again. She really, really loves and admires the watch. She's never seen one like this before, a repeater watch. And very touchingly, he puts it in her hand, shows her how to work it and says, there, my dear, it is yours. A very slight acknowledgement of the delights you have given me today. And she pushes back and says, I can't accept this. Puts it on the table, says it's late and shows him to his room. She asks then if he wants one of her gowns for the night. Interesting. He says he's very happy to sleep in his skin like Adam before the fall. He says that he'll be up before the sun and rejoin his ship. And therefore he's asking forgiveness if he can say goodbye now. And then finally, long he lay on the flat of his back, head supported by both hands, and above all by his sense of the weakening of Christine's absolute resistance. He turned the events of a singularly varied day in his mind, and a great way off, two, three, and even four different night jars churred at their various pitches. And Mike, I, I don't know how strong it is, but there's certainly hope there for Stephen Matcherin right now. Right. The, and, the, the, the night jars carry it for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and I love the way that he is clearly, both in, in actuality and quite physically, literally, giving her all the time she needs and all the time he has. I, yeah. I just thought that was fabulous. Really nice. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, okay, so what's going to happen? Well, Interestingly, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, Stephen's getting up early, he's leaving, you know, oh my gosh, this is not the way I want it. And it's not the way it goes. Christine, despite how early Stephen rises, joins him for an early breakfast. She says that she's sorry that she grieved him. He says he's sorry that he did already know about her far more grievous reasons for not marrying, but wants to say before he leaves that to him, Marriage does not mean possession, far, far less dominance. And she says she wouldn't hurt him for the world. She'll turn this over in her mind during his long and she hopes fruitful journey. And with the blessing, she may come back to feeling like an ordinary woman again. But she says, Stephen, you know, you're in no way to feel, uh, you know, bound. Don't feel bound in any way. Like, okay. I'm saying I'm considering this, but you can still live your life. Stephen bows. Here, I like a man who knows when to stop. <laughs> yeah, stop, yeah. stop, uh, stop arguing, stop asking, you know. And she adds that she's going to visit a cousin soon who lives very near the Aubreys and is quite happy to carry any letters that Stephen and his friend might have. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Very exciting. So, Stephen says, this is a personal question. I don't like asking personal questions, but does she find it easy to travel? And I think he's talking about, you know, does she get seasick and stuff like that? She says she finds it very easy. She often takes a maid with her. She finds that seamen are particularly kind to women. She's obviously had a very selective experience of certain kinds of seamen. But there you go. Um, he talks about how he's known women traveling to and from India independently. But he says, from some imbecility of mind, West Africa seemed infinitely more remote. Well, Mike, we, we've got to hope that that's not a bit of foreshadowing all of its own there. He's very happy for the offer of letters. They say goodbye, and Stephen finishes off with a, with a little mm. God bless. And the, the birds are still setting the emotional temperature here. Stephen stops on his way back to the ship to watch the birds and says the text, his heart 
glowed with sanguine hope. As much as he had loved his visit, his stomach even so reminds him that Christine's servants really aren't the ones to rely on for making good coffee. He needs a good cup of coffee. He goes straight into town. Jacob greets him at the coffee shop. All their patients, it turns out, have declared themselves well, just in time for the surprise to start competing against two other men of war that have come in. They're playing cricket, they're playing timed naval games, they're competing in gunnery, and this is all not Jacob's cup of tea at all, so he's left the ship. Their only patient, he says, is a youth from Erebus that Hansen had struck to the ground boxing. Apparently, this is quite a thing. Hansen's nickname name among the crew is now the Lion of the Atlas, which Mike is... Is a bit worrying since A, this kid's a midshipman and we know what happens to midshipmen, and B, Lions of the Atlas were watched being killed by Stephen Batcherin in the previous book. But anyhow, the, the officers are all deeply involved in the games. Captain Aubrey alone is not really completely into this. He's rather oppressed in his, uh, in his spirits. Jacob then asks Stephen if he's satisfied with the captain's health. And Mike, this this sets an interesting conversation about Aubrey and his condition and his time of life going between Jacob and Stephen. Yeah, Stephen asks if he means the captain's physical health. And, And Jacob asks whether the two can be separated, saying that the captain's light seems to have gone out. Stephen says, well, yeah, the captain's wife used those very words. Jacob notes, however, that Stephen's light appears to be glowing like, he says, a moderately resplendent sun. Yeah, and Stephen does not answer that, but says that because he and Jacob are old friends, and we assume physicians, he will explain the captain's dimming. And he tells Jacob that while Stephen is himself loosely attached to the Royal Navy, that the captain is literally of it. You know, he's inseparable from the Navy. And that at this point in his career, when some men at his stage of the list, you know, right up there on the seniority list, yeah, this is the time when people are either selected for flag rank as a rear admiral of the blue or not. Some of them, he explains, are yellowed, you know, the end of their hopes with no return to eligibility. Some of this is based on merit, but much of it is based on political and family influence, perhaps oftentimes more based on that. And Stephen says in, in a great understatement, Aubrey has not always been politically wise. So hmm. now Stephen points out in the piece, Jack is probably thinking that he has very little opportunity to distinguish himself and may soon seem men junior to himself, given their blue flag. Therefore, his lights have certainly dimmed with, as Stephen says, the real possibility that it should go out entirely and that nothing will restore it except that flag. Stephen says it's actually a thing in the Navy. His colleagues tell him it's called flag sickness, and it often happens to people at this stage of the post-captain's list. He says people with it suffer from anxiety, loss of appetite, and joie de vie, while often the essential masculine functions are disturbed so that medical men have observed either a virtual impotence or an unwholesome activity. Here, in Jack's case, Stephen's saying, there's nothing so extreme, but there is an oppression, little or no music, and he will play chess cards or backgammon, but only 
out of complacence. So we've been noticing mm-hmm. these little hints about Jack and music and some of his behavior. Jacob is calling it out and Stephen is reminding us again what's going on emotionally, mentally and emotionally for Jack here. Right. And it's a real downer, this chapter, because we had Stephen with this rebuff from Christine Wood, although we've got the possibility of hope again. And alongside the hope, we've got birds, right? Birds are in the background for Stephen. That's his kind of lodestone. Actually, Jack Aubrey is getting some emotional setbacks here and is very uncertain of his place in the world. And he hasn't got birds and he neither has he got his lodestone, you know, his core, which is music. So there's reason to be worried for both of our major characters here. Now, Stephen goes on to ask Jacob if he knows anyone who can tell him about a large Portuguese guinea man, a ship in other words, in which a lady friend of his is about to take passage. And of course, he's trying to find out by which means Christine Wood might be headed back to the UK. Jacob says he'll take Stephen to see his cousin, who's the representative of Lloyd's, the insurance agent. And Stephen at this moment feels for his watch to sort of orient him as to what time it is. And he realizes it's gone. And that gives him a little jet of delight. Stephen asks then if one of his clerks can have her cabin on the Guinea man filled with flowers before it sails. Stephen, Maturin, you old romantic. Jacob says, no problem, he'll arrange it. And they both need to get back to the ship before the next boxing match. And Mike, we've got really rapid changes of emotional tone here. We had real kind of agony and logging and then a little bit of hope for Stephen. We had actually a fresh perspective on, you know, low spirits for Jack Aubrey. But now we're going back to a boxing match. We have to make these really, really rapid turns of kind of mood and tone here. Um, and we're going to find out as well about Mr. Hansen, our friend. Right. Richard, and right? I, I, you know, I'm exactly feeling like you, Ian. I feel like kind of swung from one side to the next, from one side to the next. I go, oh, God, not Hansen, not boxing. Oh, no, what might possibly happen here? And coming aboard, Stephen is helped up by Mr. Hansen. Stephen notes that Hansen looks like he's been through the wars. He's got one black eye, dried blood on his lower face, a visibly swelling ear. And Hansen, in response, says, oh, sorry, it was only a little sparring. Stephen says, well, you know, you come down to the sick berth. I'm going to put a couple stitches into that eyebrow. And Hansen tells him that he fought a heavier, thoroughly game chicken who had no notion of a long straight to the left throat. Game chicken. Ian, we've heard that before, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Uh, he's, he's talking about somebody as being a game chicken. But of course, there was the game chicken. The game chicken was the nickname of a real late 18th century prize fighter named Henry Pierce. I think Mike, we've had him referred to in earlier times in the calendar when we've talked about prize fighting and boxing. But this is a, a pretty good signifier that it turns out that this, this fellow Hansen is pretty handy with the gloves, right? Um, Nothing deters someone quicker, we learn, than a determined blow to the throat. I'm pretty sure that's not in the modern uh, contemporary version of the rules of boxing, but it turns out that that's a legitimate and uh, and pretty devastating blow in the kind of prize fighting that we're talking about here. And I, I'm already worrying that I know that Barrett Bonden, when he was fighting his... Uh, uh, his his foe back a couple of books ago had had a plan for how he was going to win, and that plan kind of backfired on him. And I'm a little bit worried for Horatio Hansen that planning to go for a blow to the throat to this opponent might mean the same thing could happen to him. Anyhow, Stephen advises 
Hansen to avert his eyebrow in his fight after dinner, suggesting that he should face his opponent crabwise. So we're, we're into this whole prize fighting thing here. And we haven't forgotten that Stephen's got his eye simultaneously on the guinea man that's homeward bound with flowers for Christine and presumably some other things as well, right? Right, right. Well, and, and, and we finally get back, you know, we'd mentioned Jack earlier. Stephen finishes up with Hanson, then goes to the cabin where he was headed originally. And Jack is there. Jack, of course, is delighted to see Stephen and says he hopes that Stephen has some really prodigious good news. Stephen says, well, not as prodigious as he'd hoped. You know, she declined his proposal, but said she would consider it while they were away and offered to carry their letters back to England. He asked Jack to ask Sophie to please write Mrs. Wood, Christine to us, and invite her to visit, to visit Wolcombe. Yeah. Stephen tells Jack he wants Christine to meet Sophie and the children and that he hopes that Christine and Bridget will love one another here, you know, that there'll be mm. a spark there. Jack says he's sure they'll all get along famously and thinks that Bridget will appreciate the kindness and attention from Christine since Jack's girls, being a little older, don't regard her, he says, as much as they should. Mm. Jack says that he's wanted to speak to them about it, but Sophie had told him that raiding has never yet begot tenderness. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You come down on the girls and they're not going to treat Bridget better, I promise you. Mm -hmm. And Jack says he also doesn't want to spark his girls' tendency towards jealousy. So, you know, thinking that, mm, yeah, you know, now they've got Sophie's attention. Now Jack's talking about treating Bridget. And this, this may be really backfire here. But Jack says he esteems Mrs. Woods. Uh, so he knows he knows Christine from his prior visits here, from his relationship with the governor, that he really admires her. And he's sure that she and Bridget will be friends. Now, he asks if he should have Sophie invite Mrs. Wood to stay until Stephen and Jack return from their journey. And Stephen says that would be most kind. But I, I suspect that I know she's going to be visiting her cousin. I suspect she'll be visiting her brother. And I don't think she'll want to leave Africa that long. After mm -hmm. all, she travels with great ease. And by the way, she'll be sailing on the Gabon next month, the ship taking her to London along with any letters they want to give her. And then Stephen adds, between ourselves, she is rather wealthy. I think yeah. trying to explain not only a little bit about Christine, but about her coming and going. And she doesn't need housing for the full time. Yeah, she's not being left there. But it also comes across as like, I really, really fancy her. And by the way, she's absolutely minted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. Oh, dear me. These, these, these two guys, Stephen and Jack, are still partly their kind of teenage selves, I think, in, in some respects. Anyhow, Jack is... Still pretty sanguine about this whole thing. He invites Stephen to have a glass of wine. That all sounds great, he says. But first, I want you to write your letter to Sophie. I want to finish one off myself so that we can send it with a government packet, a government dispatch ship that's leaving the day after tomorrow. Jack calls for Killick, who's clearly been listening on the other side of the door. Killick appears instantly. Jack calls for champagne, best writing paper, and a pot of ink. And as he's setting out to go and get this together for them, Killick mentions in passing that Midshipman Hansen is now stripping for his fight 
with a reefer from the Polyphemus. So yet another ship-on-ship sporting challenge has come up here, and Hansen is up for a prize fight. Jack invites Stephen to come and watch this, but says, oh, but we, we shouldn't let the wine lose its coolness. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love their solicitousness for the, uh, for, the, for the wine here. And Mike, it's, it's a lot like the scene that we had in the dripping pan back, what was it, in Yellow Admiral. There's an improvised ring on the forecastle of the ship, and in this ring, the two men face off against each other. This is the final lightweight bout in the whole championship, and they fight with a singular ferocity, both of them wanting to win for their ships. And Mike, I don't think we've got any of the jeopardy of the, you know, the, the, the needle and the resentment behind, that we had for the prize fight that Bondon took part in, but it's still a prize fight, and we still think there's some risk of some physical damage here. The guy from the Polyphemus is thick and burly. He closes often to batter away at Hansen's ribs and chest and flanks if possible. Hansen, though, is more agile. He keeps his distance. He lands his left-handed blows, but never hits his opponent enough to get his head thrown back, which is what he's looking for, of course, to make his final play here. Mike, do you want to talk us through how this all wraps up here? Well... O'Brien writes, Jack and Stevens' whispered prayers and audible advice had no effect until the fifth round, when Polyphemus, with lowered guard, sought to avoid a shocking blow on his nose, jerked back head and all, exposed his throat, and received the final disabling choking blow. Jack congratulated both gasping, exhausted combatants, awarded the minute silver cup, and then learned that Polyphemus had crushed surprise in the pooling race for cutters round the port, and all hands cheerfully adjourned for the general feast provided by surprise at which Harding presided, the captain being taken up with paperwork, seeing that they were now to weigh at the height of flood. Mm. End of chapter five. Wow. Mm. Goodness me, Mike! It, it's quite the chapter. It, it's been a roller coaster with Stephen and Christine, especially. We've had this reminder that Jack himself is in a bit of a low spirits place, with you know the risk of his light going out. And then we've had all the birds, and then we've had the the shipboard life and the boxing as well. The, the, the birds seem to have had a really, really significant role to play in the chapter, right? Well, it's it's fascinating to me. It, it, this was so much about Christine and Stephen, but like you say. We get all this about the birds, about their mating plumage for various species. We get myths and legends and beliefs. We get the things of faith, the things of science, the differing beliefs, naturalist missionaries. And we've got Stephen wondering early in the chapter, after thinking about these mating rituals of birds and male plumage, if his own notions are correct. Christine wondering if all married women feel like her, young married women. We get all this nature and faith, emotional and scientific connections. You know, Stephen keeps coming back to this Genesis-like world of being able to walk together naked and thinking nothing of it before the fall. You know, I can sleep in my skin like Adam before the fall. This fall being original sin and then this belief that we have to cover ourselves with fig leaves to hide our nakedness. To me, I just, you know, at first I'm just taking this all in going, what a fascinating chapter. This is clearly O'Brien in all his powers. And I believe there's even more to plumb here. Yeah, I, I think so. There seems to be this 
really deep examination going on of the connection between religion and people's idea of faith and what that means about the, the order of things for relationships. You know, Stephen said, maybe my notions are wrong. He seems, O'Brien also seems to be exploring the notion that the, the, the order of society is patriarchal and also that married life means man and woman together, woman possessed by the man. I think he's playing with that a little bit. He's trying to figure out the difference between uh, faith and the natural world and what we can see and what we tell ourselves is so. And, you know, we, just like Jack in early life and just like Stephen all the way through his life, we, you know, we lack perspective on where we should be and how we should be. And I don't know, maybe we're reaching a bit far. I, I think O'Brien is, is working at that level in this chapter. What do you think? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, you know, I think O'Brien keeps kind of saying the way we lived, if you will, naturally yeah. <laughs> before the fall, before this whole notion of original sin, the way we yeah. treated each other, maybe even the way birds are still treating each other in some of this thing, the way the bird males are all in their plumage and stuff and how they interact with females. It's probably an analogy, something that I could stretch way too far but we clearly have O'Brien tying this into a bow as Stephen comes back and says that marriage or mating does not mean possession, far, far less dominance, you know. And there is this kind of underlying theme of companionship, you know, which seems to be in O'Brien's mind. No wonder having just lost his companion of many years yeah. here. And, and I'm thinking, well, let's watch this. Let's let's see where this goes. Yeah, and you can speculate about the role that this sort of the Christine Woods, you know, is is there room for a platonic relationship with a woman story? What part of O'Brien's real reflection and expectation was that? I'm as sure as it can be because he was in his 80s and this idea never appears in any of the biographic writings. I'm as sure as I can be that he wasn't, thinking of going and finding himself a new wife in the way that Stephen is no. here. No. But was he reflecting on you know, an, another way in which he might have lived with Mary or that men might have lived with their, with their wives? Was he reflecting on something that he'd learned from his time with Mary about the kind of the, the platonic side, the companionship side of the life that they'd had? And it, it doesn't really matter, but it's interesting to wonder where the thought came from in his mind. Yeah. And and I love the way O'Brien took us through this. You know, it seems to crush Stephen's hopes at first, and then Christine yeah. comes around a little bit in the next morning. And Stephen certainly appears to have all his hopes up. And who imagined yeah. that he's going to be such a romantic, filling her room with flowers <laughs> on the thing? It sounds like Jack, you know, kind of spiffing up his ship for Sophie's first visit here and voyage with him here. But we did have that little bit of an inclination about traveling and traveling from West Africa and everything. I thought, okay, well, let's, let's hope that that is not an ill-fated trip. Oh my gosh. Don't even think about it. Oh, right. my word. By the way, I can think of several occasions when Stephen could have filled the cabin of Diana Villiers with flowers and didn't. So, you know, <laughs> he's, he's pushing, he's pushing his own version of the boat out here quite a bit. Anyway, meanwhile, just thinking about the, the other characters besides Jack and Christine here, as we've said, all is not completely well. Stephen and Jacob's conversation tells us exactly that it's not all well with Jack. 
He's got this information coming back from colleagues about flag sickness, which sounds like all is not boding well for Jack. We've been talking about Jack's declining powers and the lack of his masculinity and his worry about yellowing and his worry about his identity. But O'Brien seems to be spelling it out more clearly now in the middle of this book than he has been for quite a while. And then, and then this ending scene, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're into Hanson. He's actually fighting prize matches. Hopefully, I, I, I love the reminder back to Bondin, and, and yeah. I'm hopefully you know, that his winning for surprise is a good omen, you know, not the way Bondin's ended up. And if it's a good omen, then I'm wondering, are we off to Chile next? You know, we're gonna we're gonna weigh on the tide, on the flood? What? Goodness me. Mike, that's a that's a tantalizing question. I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say next week to just a tiny bit more, Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I should like that of all things. <laughs> She'll be sailing on the Gabon. Gabon? Gaboon? Gaboon? Gabon? Gibbon? Gabon? I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> there you go. I said that's the name of the ship. I don't know. Yeah, that she'll be sailing on the Gabon next month.